Hello and welcome to The Charter, Queen's University Belfast's social charter podcast, highlighting the positive impact our students and staff have made and continue to make on our society. My name's Morris McCartney, and in this episode we'll be looking at health, both physical and mental. In the second section, Dr. Karen Galway of the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Queen's tells us about how students and staff in the school have risen to the challenge of addressing mental health concerns during the COVID-19 pandemic. But first, Professor Mark Lawler from the Patrick G. Johnson Centre for Cancer Research at Queen's outlines the history of the All-Ireland Cancer Consortium and talks about a paper he and his co-authors published recently showing just how effective the body has been. Good morning, Mark. Professor Lawler, good to see you, even if remotely. You too, Morris. Good to see you. Thank you, sir. You're one of the first people I've talked to um, online for this podcast series, um, obviously because of the restrictions that have been brought in as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But as it happens, we're also recording this the day before the 22nd anniversary of the signing of the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement. I suppose most people know pretty much about the rocky history of the institutions that that, that established, but... Probably people don't realise that there was also a uh, an outcome relating to cancer research. So maybe you could tell us about how that came about. Yes, no, absolutely, because it was directly as a result of the Good Friday Agreement um, that an initiative started uh, that was known as the Ireland All Ireland National Cancer Institute uh, Cancer Consortium. Uh, it was originally signed as a memorandum of understanding at Stormont Buildings uh, in October of that year. Um, and then for the last 20 years has been really a very productive and active partnership uh, between researchers, clinicians, scientists in Ireland, Northern Ireland and the National Cancer Institute, which is one of the best cancer institutes in the world in Washington. It was the brainchild of my friend, my mentor and uh, my leader, uh, Professor Paddy Johnson, uh, who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago, uh, so tragically, uh, but he had this idea that really, if we could work together, we could conquer cancer. Um, cancer, uh, I always say, doesn't respect political borders, so why should we? So really this initiative in terms of doing a, an all-island approach uh, with uh, researchers also at the National Cancer Institute in Washington made a lot of sense and it's been very productive over the last 21 years. So it's, uh, it's actually not just all Ireland then, it's also, there's a, an international dimension? I mean, obviously, you absolutely. Paddy had worked at the NCI and the National Cancer Institute in Washington, and he saw that opportunity that you know really bringing together the best minds from the United States, from Ireland, and um, from Northern Ireland was the way in which we could really drive uh, informative research that would help cancer patients on the island of Ireland. And is it? Uh, it involves other institutions across Ireland, in, uh, hospitals as well as universities, or. Absolutely. That was one of the great things about it. One of the things that it did was it really probably set up cancer clinical trials infrastructure on the island of Ireland, uh, which wasn't really there, was very uh, diffuse before that. Um, since the start of the agreement, over 35,000 patients on the island of Ireland have been involved in clinical trials for cancer. And so that's been a huge benefit, um, both in terms of the research that was done, but also the benefit for patients in terms of better patient outcomes. That's excellent. And uh, the, I believe you've um, recently published a paper that, you know, you, you did some research into the impact that the, uh, 
Yes, yeah, we, we were we were very interested to look and see well what was the impact of this. Yes, it was a, a very um, striking agreement, and obviously it came out of the Good Friday Agreement. But what we were interested in what was the impact um, on the island of Ireland, and, and we found it was quite profound. Uh, we just published this recently, a landmark paper in the European Journal of Cancer, um, and what it showed was that we, with the All Island Cancer Consortium, essentially doubled cancer research. Uh, activity on the island of Ireland, but not only in terms of numbers of scientific papers, for example, but also the quality of those papers. So it greatly increased the quality of those papers. It uh, meant then that we were actually as well cited, which is a way of judging how, how the quality of the paper is as researchers in other parts of the world. And it also led to Irish researchers uh, writing joint papers with some of the best researchers in the United States uh, in the area of cancer. So it really had a great both qualitative but also quantitatively it gave a big boost to cancer research on the island of Ireland. Um, so that was, if you like, the research side and the research outputs, but also had significant impact in relation to improving cancer services on the island of Ireland and also improving outcomes for patients. So it really showed also that research is something that drives better cancer care for patients. And really the results were quite profound and that's why they were accepted in a, in a leading European cancer journal. Yeah, I was uh, struck by the, the method you chose to test this. You know, obviously you can sort of uh, take a look at how many papers were published and so forth, but how do you, how do you have a, you know, a control in, in a situation like this? So tell us a little bit about that. How did you... Yeah, no, we, we have to think quite a lot about this because we, we have to think about is there something else that happened in some other country or countries around the same time that we could use as a way of, of judging? And, and there wasn't other agreements that were agreed with other countries in Europe. But what we did see was that it was around the same time where a number of bridges were built, physical bridges um, between Sweden and Denmark. And what we did was we then looked to see what effect they had in terms of driving increased collaboration between Danish researchers and Swedish cancer researchers, uh, particularly in institutions in Copenhagen and in Lund. Um, and we used that as, a, if you like, a, a way of, of modelling uh, what the effect was there and, and relating that then to the effect of the All-Island Cancer Consortium. And it's quite a good model. It allowed us to show that um, in both situations, they led to increased cancer research activity and, and impact, but more than twice fold more uh, for research on the island of Ireland. So, so yeah, slightly unusual approach maybe, but we came up with it as a way of addressing a particular issue. As you said, we needed some type of a control to show how did our uh, results that we found compare with activities in other parts of Europe. So the, the metaphorical bridges of the collaborative research in Ireland actually turned out to be even more effective than literal Scandinavian bridges. That's it, um, you've got it in one, Morris. So thinking ahead then, um, where do we go from here? Well, I, I guess you've, uh, that, that paper shows that the collaboration has been really fruitful and, and productive. Do you think you've got enough research infrastructure yet or... Where do you want to go from here? Well, well, what we really feel now is the time to really create a, a virtual All-Ireland Research Centre. And so this initiative was a consortium initiative that you know, drove different research activities across the island. We now think we're really in a position to build on that. 
Um, I think it's particularly important for Northern Ireland in the context of Brexit, uh, because one of the things we're worried about, obviously, is losing the ability to do collaborative cancer research with other parts of Europe. So one of the things we really feel is that connection between the uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland, which has been built up through the All-Ireland Cancer Consortium, could go to the next level uh, with an All-Ireland Cancer Research Centre. And this is something that's being looked at in general in relation to research centres on the island of Ireland. Uh, Science Foundation Ireland and uh, its Director General, uh, Mark Ferguson, who's also the Chief Scientific Officer for the government, uh, is very keen on the idea of all island research centres. And I met him just before uh, the lockdown, actually, at the, uh, in, in uh, the United States, in Washington, uh, where I was talking to senior leadership of the National Cancer Institute and also uh, Mark was there for a US-Ireland R&D partnership uh, meeting and we discussed you know, the possibility and, and certainly um, it is attractive to set up an all-island research that really brings together the best minds across the island of Ireland to deal with a, a significant health challenge, uh, which is cancer. I think you said there it was uh, going to be a virtual centre. So, I mean, I suppose one thing about the current situation is that we're all getting used to working virtually. Um, so that may be a, a bit of a help in terms of setting up if you're going to be setting up a, a virtual. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, data is a big part of this. So how do we use data? How do we use data to understand more about how cancer develops, but also how do we use that to drive impactful approaches that will develop better diagnostics for cancer, uh, better therapeutics for cancer, and also um, yield better survival for cancer patients. So, so it's really attractive having this virtual approach that relies on sort of a data-driven approach, um, but then brings together the best minds across the island to really do something significant in the space. I, I'm really excited about it. I think the paper that we've published has shown that there is this all-Ireland collaborative approach that is working in, in different uh, cancer domains. And it's now how do we build on that to really set something um, that will drive a, you know, a collaborative partnership. I, I often say you know, we, we need to collaborate uh, with each other against our common, common enemies. So if we, if we don't collaborate um, you know, the, the chances are that we won't see significant developments that really will have impact. Um, as I said, cancer you know, knows no borders, so, so why should we? And it's really a great opportunity to bring together researchers on the island of Ireland um, to drive an agile approach um, to combat this common disease. I wonder if you are, what do you think of the issue of well, Brexit, the B word, what we were all talking about before uh, the coronavirus sort of knocked it off the charts, as it were. Um, is there any risk of sort of going backwards on this, um, given that one part of the island is, you know, leaving the EU and one's not? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously you know, it is a challenge. We did a study on this in, in terms of looking at, you know, obviously there are challenges for Northern Ireland in, in terms of the research funding we bring in, for example, from Europe. Um, but we feel that this approach that we're linking together between Ireland and Northern Ireland can in some way mitigate against this approach. And certainly anybody I've talked to has been very um, enthusiastic about the possibility. We've had conversations with a number of institutions 
institutions uh, in Ireland uh, and looking at different universities, hospitals, etc. And certainly it seems that everybody is game for this type of approach. And so obviously we, all we need now is, is ways in which so you know, particular research calls and that will allow us to, to get funding from both Ireland and Northern Ireland and also potentially other funding to, to help drive this initiative forward. So just uh, finally, um, you helped to shape a European Cancer Patients' Bill of Rights along with a successful coalition we've just been talking about. Where do you see that going from here? Where do you see the rest of your research going from here? Or have you any other major initiatives ready to, to go? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the things, the, the European Cancer Patient Bill of Rights is something I'm especially proud of. Uh, we launched it in the European Parliament on World Cancer Day in 2014. It was uh, translated into 17 different languages, adopted in 25 different European countries. Uh, we won the prestigious 2018 European Health Award. So it's, it's been really significant. It's been adopted now by the European Cancer Organization, which is ECHO, which is the largest uh, multidisciplinary cancer organization in Europe. And they've just asked me actually to drive a new initiative uh, in relation to this to develop a European Codes of Cancer Practice. And so that's a really exciting approach. And we've been working on that uh, over the last couple of months and hoping to launch it. Um, COVID-19 accepted uh, towards the end of this year. So I think that's going to be really exciting because I think it's really important that we look at cancer inequalities um, across Europe. And and that's what the Bill of Rights did. And also it's allowed us now to develop um, what we're calling a European cancer ground shot. And so the idea of this is to look at ways in which we can really develop through research and innovation uh, ways in which we can uh, cater for cancer challenges and cancer needs across Europe. So particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, where there are particular challenges um, that are, are more obvious than in, in maybe Western Europe. And it's, it's modeled, or the idea, the name of it is modeled on the US uh, cancer ground shot, or sorry, cancer moonshot. Um, but we feel that there are particular basic issues that need to be sorted out in relation to screening, in relation to access to medicines, etc. So we felt the approach of a European cancer ground shot made more sense in that regard. And the Lancet Oncology, which is one of the premier cancer journals in the world, have taken that on. And I'm leading a, a Lancet Oncology European Cancer Ground Shot Commission, uh, which hopefully will come out uh, in the first half of um, 2021. And obviously very excited about that. And that's very much a collaboration across Europe uh, involving patient advocates, uh, cancer researchers, cancer clinicians, uh, cancer health systems experts, etc. That sounds excellent. That's extraordinary work you've already done and you're obviously continuing to do. So thank you very much, Professor Mark Lawler. Great to talk to you again, Morris. Uh, and it's a really exciting time to be in cancer research. Thank you very much. Much emphasis has been put on detecting and treating the virus at the root of COVID-19 pandemic, but the health implications of our current situation also go beyond those immediate concerns. We've just heard from Mark Lawler that there may be knock-on effects on people with other illnesses, for example, in the area of cancer treatment. But there's also the question of the mental health impact of this crisis. And I'm joined now by Karen Galway from the School of Nursing and Midwifery, And I understand, Karen, you've just been speaking to the mental health team from your school. 
So maybe you could tell us, first of all, a little bit about your work and then about uh, how the mental health team are responding to this crisis. Hi, Morris. Thanks so much for the opportunity to come come talk to you about this. Um, so, yes, I work in the School of Nursing and Midwifery. I lecture the undergraduate students and post, post-reg students as well. Um, and uh, I've just been chatting to the mental health team. Our immediate concern, I suppose, has been with the students who have volunteered to go out and work in the front line who are towards the end of their nursing qualification and we're so proud of them and and they really have taken this on with great enthusiasm and uh, a lot of strength so we've we've been talking this morning a little bit about um how to help them manage their mental health uh going out into the front line and a few things have come up that uh, I think might might be quite useful. So, one of the things is that you know there is there is real worry. There is real worry around for everybody, but especially I suppose for the frontline workers and maybe even more so for our students who have taken on this this work. Um, and the real the real worry I suppose has to be balanced against sort of hypothetical worry, if you like, and um, just for the students to maintain and and, and for everyone really uh, to think to think this through in terms of what is a real worry, something that I can action, something that I can do about it, something that I can put a solution in place versus the hypothetical worry, which you know we all have about things that can't be answered right now there's so much uncertainty and it's important I suppose to try and allocate maybe a wee bit of time for that hypothetical worry that there's no answer to but to try and put a put a limit around it to sort of say well I'll, I'll I can I'm happy enough to spend 30 minutes sort of thinking about that hypothetical worry and allowing those thoughts to come rather than trying to suppress them but also to set that aside if there's nothing you can do about it the real strength here is in the things that you can do something about and setting up solutions for yourself that that are that are real that address the real worries and there's another issue that um, we would want to support our students with and that's this notion of moral injury. So at the minute the healthcare system um, is coming with a lot of difficult decisions and when the situation is so unusual um, decisions are having to be made that wouldn't normally be made and, and about uh, treatments and what support people can and can't have and get and what capacity is there for that and I think you know for anyone in the front line the important thing is really to have space and time to discuss what decisions are being made and to get reassurance around you know doing the best possible thing in the scenario and I suppose that is linked in a way to this concept of supervision that happens in um, clinical settings where there would really be two types of supervision that people could get. One is sort of personal supervision, one is clinical supervision. So the personal supervision is really just having, again, space to, to, to discuss, well, now my shift's over, how am I feeling? What is on my mind and what do I not want to take home with me and ruminate over? And so that supervision, that time and space for supervision is, is so important and really encouraging our students to try and, to try and get that in place. Um, and clinical supervision similar but more focused on well what actual decisions were made what records were kept and, and being being reassured again that everything's been done according to um best practice you know best best possible scenario so 
so those are those are the things that that we were talking about with the with the mental health team. But they're they're quite specific to our students and others who are out out in the front line in the health service. And uh, you know what? The, the, there's no getting away from how difficult that's been. It's been it has happened very very quickly, which means a lot of decisions have been made very quickly. And of course, they've been made across the whole of the UK, which is good because we've got support across. Uh, the Nursing Midwifery Council and um, the Royal College of Nursing and, and all, all the all the senior thinkers have been involved in, in the decisions that have been made. However, it is still quite difficult. There's There can be a wee bit of role confusion now. These students are still students. They still have learning requirements that they must tick off. Uh, they have a portfolio that needs filled in. There's certain things that they need to they need to be doing in order to show that, that they, they've got the right experience to go on the nursing register. So that can lead to a bit of role confusion when all of a sudden they're also being paid. They also now have this new role that's been defined. And um, so uh, our, our nursing students are, are at three weeks now out in practice. And, you know, we're, we're, we're still we're still dealing with bits and pieces of confusion around what exactly they should be doing and shouldn't be doing. Um, uh, but you know they're we're doing our best to support them. We've set up all all manner of different kinds of supports for our students. Um, it's a bit frustrating that we can't go out and see them. Uh, but you know if there was a terrible crisis, goodness, hopefully there isn't. But um, we we would see them if we needed to. Everybody's so committed. But it's been hard. It's been hard on, on yeah, it's been hard on lots of levels. Hard on the students and, and I guess also hard on even the hardened professionals, as it were, you know, even the those who've been uh, out in the profession for a long time, I presume, are finding it very stressful at the minute. And I guess that's another aspect of the mental health implications of this pandemic. Yeah, I suppose, you know, for everybody, widening out from those who are, uh, who are in the front line in health, who are key workers, having to, you know, continue with their daily routine through all of this. One article that I read that I, I found really, really useful to try and sort of conceptualise what is happening with people's mental health it was an article by Scott Bernardo at the Harvard Business Review. And he, he talks about the situation being a little bit like anticipatory grief so that is this idea of loss you know we all are feeling some kind of loss loss of normality loss of the things that we can usually rely on um loss of connection loss of company loss of socialization uh, and anticipatory grief it, it looks a little bit like anxiety we'll all relate to this you know interruptions to your concentration for example difficulty sleeping, um, sometimes, you know, physical symptoms that feel a bit like panic, you know, palpitations and other ex- unexplained physical things like headaches or back pain and, uh, you know, all, all manner of things that can come from this sense of just stress. You know, we use the term grief in everyday life as, you know, don't, don't give me grief. <laughs> and I suppose in that sense, you know, you can ha- kind of relate to that notion that anticipatory grief is what we're feeling. We don't, re- we know something bad is happening. We know something bad is coming and it's here, but at the same time, we don't know what's happening in the future. We're all worried about what's going to happen in the future. And it's very, very difficult because nobody has the answers. And of course that would apply to, not just to the the med- medical professions, but also to family members, maybe people who have lost loved ones. Absolutely. Or even people who are self-isolating at home and so forth. 
Yes, absolutely. And I suppose, you know, I'm talking about anticipatory grief, but uh, there's a lot, an awful lot of real grief around as well, a lot, a lot of death uh, occurring. And the, 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 um, the bereavements that people are experiencing at the minute, they're not, they're not having that outlet for processing them, you know, to not be able to have a funeral, to not be able to go through the usual processes, which are very, very useful in terms of helping us cope. So that is a loss as well. Um, and you know that that's very difficult but there's sort of they're very specific stages not linear stages they can come in any order but there's stages to this notion of grief that um, again we'll all relate to this this denial you know this virus won't affect me it will be fine um, this anger you know I'm, I'm cross that my everyday activities can't go on that I can't do my normal world there's bargaining this notion that if I social distance for two weeks, everything's going to be okay. There's sadness. When is this going to end? This is just overwhelmingly sad scenario. And the last one on the list that comes with these stages of grief, although it's not last in order, because these things come and go in different orders for different people, is acceptance. And that, I think, is where where you can you can really do something positive because... With acceptance comes the power to manage, to cope, to decide which kinds of coping mechanisms work for me. What can I do about this situation? How I, how this is happening. It's it's going on. It's, we're in it. How am I going to figure it out? And I, I, on that note then, perhaps um, would you have any advice about uh, coping mechanisms or about where people can find resources in this sort of difficult time? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of this out there. I mean, you, you can find all kinds of advice for all kinds of people. And the one thing I suppose to, to note is that everybody's quite different in the same way as we are all experiencing this differently. You know, we hear that sort of we're all in the same boat, but really we're not all in the same boat. We're all on the same stormy sea, if you like, but our boats are all very different. Um, and in a sense, there is um, there there's something good about that because what that means is that if you can accept that we are all going through this quite differently, then you can also accept that our solutions are all quite different. Um, but there's some so some basics that are out there, and they're sort of talking about five a day for mental health. But there's so there are so many unknowns. So I suppose the first thing is. If you're starting to find yourself pondering and, and worrying about what is coming in the future, that might not that might not lead you <laughs> down a very good path because we just don't know. Nobody knows. But what we do have is we have our present moment. So in your present moment, what can you do for yourself to ease your worries, to ease your mind? And I mean, this is this is basic mindfulness in a way, um, which you know you can find lots of resources about that out, out there, about how to maybe meditate or how to just find yourself in the moment and appreciate a moment. But you know, we are all being challenged to cope with something huge all at the same time. And one of the silver linings of hope, I suppose, in that for me is that. There's really no stigma around this. You know, usually when we think about mental health, we do think about the stigma that's attached to it. And in this scenario, 
you know, everybody is experiencing this in one way or another. And uh, my hope is that that might reduce the stigma associated and sort of break down that them and us scenario that can happen in people's heads about, oh, that person has mental health problems. Well, you know, we all have mental health. And then this is, this is such a such a weird scenario, but in the sense it allows us all to recognise how important it is to take care of our mental health. That, I suppose, is one positive that I'm trying to grip onto. One of, one of the other things that has come to my mind um, and that we've seen a lot of chat about on social media is this concept of the, the shoulds of lockdown. What should I be doing? How productive should I be being? Should I be learning a new language? Should I be taking this opportunity to take up running? Well, yes, by all means, if that floats your boat, go for it. But the problem with the shoulds is that what if you don't? You know, and the the worst the worst thing would be to be sitting thinking, I feel guilty about all these things that I should be doing, and I'm not managing it. Well, you know, the reality is that you're you're probably not managing it because it's it's not what you need. You know, it's not actually going to be helpful for you to push yourself into doing something that isn't coming naturally. And um, aside from you know what we mentioned about concentration levels and being able to sleep. You know, it's fine to binge on Netflix if that's what's helping you through this. Uh, so I would just say to people, don't worry about the shoulds. And um, that gets a wee bit more difficult when you start to think about, you know, trying to keep your um, trying to keep your work pattern going. I mean, you know, people say, oh, particularly for people with children at home, but say for anybody, this is really, really difficult because of concentration issues and because of this low low lying or <laughs> high lying um, level of anxiety that everybody is experiencing. So go easy on yourself and go easy on others. Everybody is dealing with this. Everybody is doing their best. I think it's, it's nice to assume that everybody is doing their best and that maybe helps just um, helps with a bit of kindness and forgiveness. More good advice. All right. Thank you very much for that. And on that hopeful note, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, uh, Dr. Karen Galway. Thank you. Thank you. Find out more about the Social Charter at our website, qub.ac.uk slash social hyphen charter. <laughs>